I loved it. I mean, but that's that's true to who she is. She would never not give 150% with everything, good and bad. I mean, if she's mad, she's really mad. And if she's happy, she's really happy. But, um, you know, it felt, it didn't ever feel forced with Nellie because Nellie is that big. Um, and her reactions are extreme every single time. Totally disproportionate to the situation most of the time. <laughs> but that's, I love, I kind of love that. And um, I, I get, a, I don't know, I get a real kick out of that. It's an adrenaline rush. Welcome to Not A Bomb Podcast. If this is the first time you're joining us, we're a little podcast that talks about movies that bombed in the theaters or maybe bombed with the critics. If uh, you're a returning listener, hey, we missed you. Thanks for coming back. Um, Brad, what are we doing this month in December? We are looking back on all, well, not all the films, on a handful of films that bombed in 2023. Oh, we are. Possibly, possibly 2022. Oh, uh, somebody stretched the rules a little bit there. You want to? I stretched. I stretched them just a little bit for this pick. Uh, for 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 this week, yeah. um, mm-hmm. I I picked Babylon. Technically released in 2022, got a wide release in 2023. So I'm going with the wide release on this one. I see what you did there. Tricky. Okay. Well, uh, we wanted to bring a, a fellow group of hosts on, but unfortunately one of them, we, we tried to help him prioritize his life. And we said, look, it goes waffles, friends, and then work. But unfortunately he chose work over waffles, but the other one got the memo. So Brad, do you want to introduce our special guests? Yeah. Our special guest is Jose from watch skip plus question mark. <laughs> Someone who loves Wide releases. Yes. <laughs> ah, see what you did there. That was, yeah, pretty good. Even, even better. Um, yes. No, unfortunately, unfortunately read, uh, we, we took a hiatus. Uh, so our last episode was salt burn and, uh, we're on a little bit of a holiday hiatus because both of our jobs sort of exploded and, uh, red just needs to get through the holidays. And I ended up Dun, 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 getting a new job. And yeah, so you're I like, screw this. I'm just quitting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I I had a golden parachute, thank God. And uh, I'll be starting that new job in the new year as well. And and uh, hopefully we'll get back to pod- podcasting. But I'm happy to come back on and talk about Babylon. In fact, I was uh, inviting myself back when we recorded our episode on Babylon last year. Yeah, see, Troy, it's Jose's fault. He wanted to do this at the year end, so it's Jose's fault. First, it was Josh. Now <laughs> yeah. it's Jose. So it's, it's never, never your fault. fault. It, it your bad math is not your responsibility. <laughs> I worked in corporate else's. America a long time, Troy. I learned to deflect. I like it. I like it. Deny everything, confirm nothing, and make counter accusations. That should be yeah. like your memoir. Yeah, uh, I love it. Show and, me the evidence. And go into politics. Yeah, and go into <laughs> politics. Well, Jose, th- so you bring up a good point. You've already, you've already reviewed this film, but you wanted to come back on to talk about it. Why? So, uh, well, it has a really long, long, long run time. So it's, <laughs> yes. uh, it, it's a lot like Flowers of the Killer Moon, etc. Um, 
but I don't know. I, I did not have a very good opinion of it the, for the first time we reviewed it. And I actually went back and listened and then I rewatched it. And uh, I, this director is very, very talented. And I wasn't sure if this was just an ego show or if he really had something to say. So it's the, the um, I've been eager to revisit this. Okay. Well, we're spending this whole month just kind of talking about the bombs of 2023 and uh, we kind of kicked off the month talking about the 22. flash. Sure. Or 22. Yeah. <laughs> um, 22, three. I, I guess I'm real curious. Like what, what did you think about 2023 from a movie going experience? I mean, your podcast reviews, just all of the, the major releases and not even just the theater, but also on streaming. And I, I thought it was interesting, like variety, all, everybody's starting to publish like best of worst of lists, et cetera. And I was I was reading Variety's worst of list, and they had a lot of streaming films on there, which kind of surprised me. But what yeah. did you think overall? I mean, you you guys spent an entire year just talking about all of the movies, all the new movies, um, some hits, some bombs. What what did you think about twenty twenty three overall? You know, so I think uh, you know superhero fatigue comes to mind sure. uh, just because that's. That was the big draw this past year, in addition to uh, enduring IP, if you will, right? So we had a we had a Transformers movie, we had Fast Ten, my God, Fast Ten. Uh, you know, we had the return of Indiana Jones. We had video game properties. Um, you know, the Expendables. There was a fourth freaking Expendables movie. You know, we had uh, the killer doll was, come back, was Megan. There, and, was there, unfortunately, you know, there was. Right. Yeah, you know, if a if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, yeah. <laughs> <Right>. true. <laughs> um, I mean, there was there was a scream. There was Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, it was it was an interesting year. But I think it was like you guys have been sort of talking about. It was marked by these big financial bombs and just you know the lingering question are are people going to leave their homes and go back into theaters and and help to save exhibition or are we just digging a bigger bigger hole you know um i don't know i enjoyed a lot of what we watched but man when i hated what we watched i did not like it <laughs> okay i hey i i thought 2023 i mean for a transition year because if you think about it um, some major franchises, studios, you name it, everybody's going through a transition and, uh, some of the box office hits came out of nowhere and were a big surprise. Others that were sort of pegged as box office, hit, box office hits really just underperformed. And, it, and it's crazy because some of these studios that you thought were untouchable, like Disney or even Warner brothers, I mean, they're having a terrible year. Uh, yeah. I mean, just terrible, but at the Especially same time, Disney. Yeah, especially Disney. Well, Warner Brothers. I mean, they're they're going to have another superhero film that's tracking to look like it's it's going to tank um, with Aquaman. But um, there's there's been a lot well, of they sure are showing Aquaman preview during the NFL. They have given Warner Brothers have given all their money. They to need the NFL. it. They need it to be a hit. But I mean, it, I don't know if it's going to be. But at the same time. I, I got to be honest with you. There's been so many surprises. Um, the the most recent one that comes to mind is Godzilla minus one. Mm -hmm. Holy yeah. cow! Who knew that uh, a little film like that? We're not little. I mean, it's it's obviously a major <laughs> franchise. But what's crazy is that film to only cost fifteen million or less, and then to have that kind of showing and 
what was meant to be just, you know, I don't know, it was supposed to play for a week. And now we're on week three and they keep expanding theaters. I mean, it's crazy. So yeah, there's over 2,500 screens now. Yeah. It's pretty cool, but no, I, I don't know how you feel, Brad. I, I've had a lot of fun this year at the, at the movies and I, I thought it's been, it's all over the place, but I liked it. You know, like I always look back on the year and think like the top, you know, 10% of the films that I saw were always excellent. Like killers of the flower moon, Oppenheimer, Godzilla minus one, like all the films that I really, really enjoyed, um, all stood out. And I think that's, you know, it, I think the top 10% is always like, oh, those are really good films. It's like the 90% underneath that. Like, how much of that did you enjoy? And there was a lot that I did like quite a bit. Um, I did find myself moving a little bit further away from streaming movies this year, like new streaming stuff. I have yeah. gotten, I, I don't know. I, I don't know if I feel the quality is there. Uh, like Netflix released like 80 this year. I don't know if I saw many. Why? Well, if, if that, if they got all. a new chicken run movie, so I'm going to check that out. Um. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and there are, there are films that I do look forward to um, looking into 2024, but I think, you know, I, I, I always have, optimism for the year when looking back so i'm like oh you know i got a new scorsese film i got this i got that I got godzilla minus one which literally came out of nowhere um i read an article where it was like that made it cost 15 million dollars and the director was like i wish it cost 15 million <laughs> yeah he was saying he it didn't that. it was it wasn't even that yeah so yeah i i enjoyed uh the movies i got a new uh studio ghibli film this year so like i've got a lot to to look back on and really be happy with. So yeah, I, I thought the year overall, I would say it's, I would say it was great. I think it was a great year for film. You have to go out in and find it, but like adult films, not adult films, not like the ones that, <laughs> where were you, know, you going, get Brad? From, get from Jose. Uh, but the films <laughs> made for a more mature audience, uh, really connected this year. And I really like that. We're talking about a three-hour film tonight, but some of my favorite films this year were three-hour films. Great transition. So we're going to talk about a film that, like you said, didn't get a wide release till the beginning of the year. Uh, it's it's one of those, and and we'll get into it when you talk about the release schedule. But um, I guess the term would be Oscar bait. So it's something that it wanted to make the 2022 Oscars, so they do a limited theatrical release. And then uh, after hopefully some positive word of mouth, then it goes to a wide release. So Brad, let's go back to the beginning of the year. And why don't you give us some information about how Babylon did when it was initially released? No, oh, I don't know if we've said the title of the. F yeah, I don't think we even mentioned Babylon. Did we? No, mention I'm, Babylon? I'm getting ready to say that. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, Troy, like like the film that we're going to talk about Babylon, we're doing a late title card. So we are doing Babylon in case you can't read the title of this podcast. Oh, I guess, Babylon. I guess we really hadn't mentioned it. We just get right into the discussion. Didn't we? Yeah. Yeah. So it's Babylon. Yeah. yeah. We've but, only done this like 180 I think, times. So. <laughs> I think Babylon's title screen comes in like 30 minutes into the film. So we're just, you know, we're playing into that. Yeah. So released wide January 6th of 2023 with a reported budget of $80 million. Troy, Jose, box office return domestically for Babylon, $15 million. 
Wow. I added another added another 48. So we're looking at $63 million. Not great. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But, but I see it. I, I hundred percent. Yeah. It it has a hundred and uh, 89 minute runtime. Of course you see it. Yeah. And it's about old Hollywood. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> o- opening weekend, it makes $1.4 million. Now that's its first wide release, uh, weekend. And it got kind of moved around quite a bit. So, um, that's good enough for eighth place. And it gets beat by films like avatar, the way of the water, Megan, Puss in Boots, the last wish. A man named Otto. Oh, that that did come out. Okay, yes. all right. Uh, Black Panther: Wakanda Forever, the Whitney Houston movie. I want to dance with somebody, which I had forgotten, and the Whale all beat it out. Wow, and a lot of uh, those were again holdovers from twenty two. Yeah, twenty two. Yeah, so we're okay. looking at the first weekend of twenty three. Yeah. Um, Rotten Tomatoes. We are looking at a fifty seven percent with the critics, which. I kind of feel like this movie is kind of pandering the critics. So I was a little bit surprised by the middling reviews. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I gotta be honest with you when I first heard about it, especially when it was doing screenings and stuff in 2022, I heard a lot of um, people coming out and being very divisive about this, like right yeah. out of the gate, you would read one critic who liked it, another critic who, who just didn't like it. So it, it felt like it was like right down the middle. Yep. Yep. And then audience is right there with them with 52%. So critics and the audience are lockstep. Oh boy, gentlemen, I have a treat for us today. Movieguide.org. Oh man. Uh, hey, this time, those... this time I'm going to wait for the queue and then I'll play okay. it so I don't run out of it. So you let okay. me know. Okay. Yeah. Cause this is, this is a lot. This is a lot. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, movieguide.org is a website that is bad at grammar, but also is uh, <laughs> reviews its films not for their quality but for their content for our little Christian eyes, and they use a plus four to minus four. And guys, let's just go ahead and say what this movie is. Its rating is all at one time: one, two, three, minus minus eight. four, minus eight. Four. Yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it is. Uh, oh boy, it is a minus four, minus four. Oh. Like someone said, it's a minus eight. Yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Are, are you, uh, okay. You're, you're in need. Should I do it now? And cue the music, Troy. (laughs) Okay, so worldview. Here it goes. Very strong romantic worldview with very strong revisionist history of Hollywood from 1926 to 1934. And very strong hedonistic pagan behavior, Troy, Mm -hmm. plus strong political correct elements that attacks the creation of Hollywood code of decency with a lesbian side character who sings a dirty song and is on the uh, proud to seduce a young female star and some light moral elements. <clears throat> wow. Foul okay. language. Yeah. At least 185 obscenities, many F words. That's almost Four like Jesus. an F word a minute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah. Good luck. Le- All good from Margot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Four Jesus profanities, five GD profanities, eight light profanities, an elephant in a open truck, Unleash his bucket loads of diarrhea on a man. Like the first woman five minutes of the movie, it was crazy. A uh, woman vomits on floor, and onto a man in suit. 
Yeah. Violence. Brief extreme violence and some strong violence includes a man eats a large live rat. Image of blood splattering on the wall when a man is shot in the head. Mm -hmm. Spoiler alert. Off screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Screens of a large battle during the Crusades being filmed on a movie set. Drunken man accidentally tumbles over a balcony wall at his fancy house, but lands in the outdoor pool below. Threats of violence and thugs thugs from gangster. Thugs from gangster. This review's all over the place, man. I got to be honest. Yeah. At two men in a car. And thugs from gangster. I, that, I, That's the I, Toby Maguire thing. I think the guy that was spinning all the time. But right? what are thugs from gang? Uh, okay. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I get. It. Okay. I don't Multiple know. image. Oh, sex. Multiple image of depicted fornication. Asian woman sings a dirty lesbian song, and later wonders if the actress swings both ways. Blue references to oral sex. Woman performs sensual movements while being filmed in a makeshift saloon on a movie set. Here it comes. Nudity. Images of total frontal male nudity. One or two images of full frontal male nudity. Multiple images of upper female nudity. Some images of rear and upper male nudity and rear female nudity. Woman in skimpy outfit crashes a wild party and dances. Uh, Alcohol use. Alcohol use and drunkenness. Woman becomes an alcoholic. Uh, Drugs, smoking, cocaine, snorting in one scene, and woman becomes a drug addict. One thing they don't miss in is the piss play that happens. Oh, uh, today. yeah, the, the golden shower there. Yeah, yeah right in the, beginning. the golden shower. Yeah. They miss. Yeah. I miss reading golden shower on Movie Guide. So mm-hmm. that is their review. <laughs> That's uh, it. They mentioned the OD. No, <laughs> I don't know. So some of the stuff they leave out and some of the stuff they include is weird. Um, okay, films you could have seen January of 2023. We have Megan, Plane with Gerard Butler, uh, House Party, <laughs> A Man Named Otto, The Devil Conspiracy. Do y'all remember The Devil Conspiracy? Man, what was The Devil Conspiracy? I, most of these, I'm I'm playing. I I for some reason I thought it was like last Christmas, but you're right. That was the beginning of the year, wasn't it? Yeah. Women talking, but really, should they? Sorry. <laughs> 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 Missing Alice. Comma, darling, and that is about it. That's crazy. Troy, yeah. over to you. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking while you're reading that movie guide uh, review, after they watched the film, do you think he had to like go bathe himself in holy water? Uh, because there's there's a lot going oh. on in this thing. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. He had unpure thoughts about Margot Robbie and had to get them out of him. Like uh, uh, Paul Bettany and the Da Vinci Code, he had to just slap himself with that thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's right. That purification yeah, he had thing. to atone that way. Yeah, absolutely. Atone. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, listen, there's no way with Jose on the show, I'm going to even try and tackle all of the people behind the camera. So, Jose, I'm just going to kick it over to you. You do your thing. Tell us about all of the people that uh, participated behind the camera on Babylon. All right, starting uh, below the line, as we call it, on this film, our director and writer is Damien Chazelle. I think I'm pronouncing that right, Chazelle. Uh, he he comes from a family of acad- academicians. Is that what we would say? His parents were in academics. One, His mother was academia? a professor of history. Academia, there you go. And his uh, father was a, a professor in computer science at Princeton. Um, from humble beginnings, he did a short called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench. 
Um, and then eventually he did a short which became his first feature film, Whiplash. Um, that was in, I believe it's 2014. Um, I'm afraid to open anything on my computer because of the technical issues. Um, in 2014, that starred uh, Miles Teller and J.K. Simmons. Fantastic film. Brilliant film. Yeah, if you have not seen it. It's amazing. It's so weird. It's like, it, it's like, it's almost structured like jazz, like music in some ways. Uh, but it's also almost a psychological thriller about like a former student who hooks up with a, his, uh, you know, former teacher and they have this odd relationship. It's a very, very powerful film. After that, he would then parlay uh, that success into some screenwriting. He is credited with writing The Last Exorcism Part Two. Uh, something called Grand Piano, which kind of sounds like Phone Booth. If you imagine uh, the scenario of this film is uh, someone is being threatened if he if he uh, plays the wrong note at a uh, concert, he's going to be killed. On um, the Frodo Baggins, uh, he, he plays the wrong yep, note. Yep, exactly. Elijah Wood. Um, he's also credited as one of the writers for 10 Cloverfield Lane, interestingly enough. Uh, and then after that, of course, um, Chazelle directed uh, La La Land. Um, am I? I feel like I'm missing something in between nope. that. Nope. nope. Yeah. Okay. La La Land, which, of course, as we know, starred Ryan um, Gosling and Emma Stone. It was like a pseudo musical uh, romance story. And that ended up netting him the best director Oscar. He became the youngest to actually get that at the age of 32. Uh, that film also had nominations. I believe it won for best actress for Emma Stone. Also best original music, Justin Hurwitz. Um, and then it won the best lyrics. picture for about three minutes. Oh yeah. It won <laughs> best right. picture in the most bizarre. So I was actually reading up on this cause I still didn't quite understand what actually happened, but apparently Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway were presenting this award. They picked up the wrong envelope. And so what they had done was they had picked up Emma Stone's win for La La Land. And so when uh, Warren Beatty opened the envelope, he looked really, really confused, had no idea what to do. He shows it to Faye Dunaway. She sees the only title on there that she's looking for of a film. And she says, La La Land, the producers come up and apparently it was like, wait, I'm sorry, this is not a joke. So surreal. It, Moonlight had actually won that night, not La La Land. It was PWC's but no cigar. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and then he would follow that up strangely with First Man, which I believe is a biopic of, uh, which astronaut, Buzz Aldrin? Neil Armstrong. Neil Armstrong, sorry. Did I say Buzz Aldrin? Sorry. Neil Armstrong. At least you didn't say something like Louis Armstrong. <laughs> <laughs> yes. About space performer, uh, <laughs> Neil Armstrong. Uh, that one was released in IMAX, but didn't quite garner the attention you would think as a follow-up to an Oscar-winning film or Oscar-winning, you know, uh, award movie like La La Land. Um, I think First Man so, is brilliant. I, I love First Man quite a lot. I had actually not seen it, but I hear it's I hear it's actually really good, if not kind of depressing. It is. Neil yeah. Armstrong was kind of a weird guy, but yeah. and the, and apparently there was also the the um, the death of his son, which you know figures kind of prominently in that as well. Um, and then he uh, 
uh, actually, he took a sojourn into directing something called The Eddie, which I had not known about. It was about uh, Andre um, Holland starred in this. It was a Netflix show. He created that and um, and directed two episodes about a man running like a, a jazz uh, cafe in Paris. So that was a little strange. Uh, and then he follows it up with Babylon, uh, this film. Uh, our So he wrote that and he wrote this and directed it. Our notable producers, I'm going to say, are Mark Platt. So Platt, he is known for a lot of genre and musicals. So he, his first film that he got a credit on was a film called Campus Man, which I actually saw. I don't know if anybody saw that. It was on HBO all the time. Um, uh, but nonetheless, he has gone on to uh, produce movies like Scott Pilgrim versus the World, um, as well as other musicals like Nine, Into the Woods, the little, Mer the most recent Little Mermaid. Um, he has also done the Disney movies Mary Poppins, Aladdin, and Cruella. So very prolific producer. He's actually from Pikesville, Maryland, so hometown hero. Uh, two notable EPs are Wick Godfrey, who was behind the Twilight series as well as the Maze Runner series. Um, for a time, if Wick Godfrey's name was on it, I was like, hey, I'm going to go see it. Uh, and initially when I saw this film, I was like, oops, strike one for Wick Godfrey. Uh, the other <laughs> notable EP would be one Toby Maguire, where it seems the paradigm shift in Hollywood is, you know, if you're not getting work, you just executive producer, produce something and put yourself in it. So uh, I guess we'll get to this later. Maguire um, is in this rather somewhat prominently in a supporting role. Our music is by Justin Hurwitz. Obviously, he won the Oscar for um, La La Land. He's still doing the music here. What's curious about Hurwitz is he's actually also a writer. Uh, he's written a couple episodes for The Simpsons. Um, he's also written for some other comedy shows as well. So I, I, it's it's weird that he's sort of like this this multi hyphenate that he's done both. He wrote he wrote uh, on the League, which is one of my favorite shows. So yeah, that would that's one of the shows I've never actually seen that. It's about like I guess a fantasy, fantasy football, football league. Yep. And the friends yeah. that play in it and stuff like that. Yep. Mark Duplass is in that who I absolutely love. I think he's Correct. hysterical, yep. very talented. Um he also wrote four episodes of uh Curb Your Enthusiasm as well. So Hurwitz and um and uh Chazelle go back uh I mean he's scored basically all of his films essentially. Um, but his other scores, other notable scores have been for uh, Them, which is the prime horror series. Uh, and then additionally, um, he scored the Oscars, strangely enough, <laughs> back in 2017. Um, and then our uh, production designer is a woman named Florencia Martin. Uh, she's, I mean, she's worked her way up through the art department, but she's probably best known as the production designer for Netflix's Blonde, which starred Anna de Armas about Marilyn Monroe. And then a film you guys reviewed, Ugh. Licorice Pizza, Amazing. Uh, for which she was yep. the uh, production designer. So yeah, did I leave anybody out? Oh, cinematography. Linus Sandgren, he is our uh, cinematographer. He and Chazelle, he's lends pretty much all of Chazelle's movies. Uh, Sandgren is Swedish and he knows how to form creative relationships with directors. So back in his hometown of Sweden, he worked with Mans Marlin and Bjornstein on several shorts, uh, episodes, uh, TV series, and even lends their 
domestic debut, a thriller called Six Souls with Julianne Moore and Jonathan Rhys-Meyers. But Sandgren has also formed a relationship with um, Lasse Hallström, the renowned Swedish filmmaker. He lends uh, The Thousand Foot Journey as well as Battle of the Sexes for him. He's also worked for David O. Russell, lensing Joy and American Hustle. So the man knows how to create these relationships. He also lends No Time to Die, which was the last uh, Daniel Craig James Bond film. Don't Look Up, the Adam McKay film, for which uh, he's now being sued, apparently, because he, I guess he stole ideas. Um, and then he also scored the recent Salt Burn for... Um, Emerald Fennel, who directed a promising young woman. So that is our DP. Very, very talented. He also won the Oscar for La La Land. Awesome. And well, those are our below the line people. I love it. So thorough. So thorough, Jose. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, we're going to do something a little different. I, I don't know how much you guys know about, I guess, film history from the 20s um, going into the 30s. But, what, but what's unique about this film is rather than just sit down and, and kind of list the filmography of some of the people in front of the camera, I mean, we've, we've actually talked about a lot of these before in other episodes. I thought it'd be interesting to go back and talk about who these characters are and who they're supposed to represent. So what makes Babylon kind of unique is it is a combination of fictional and real-life people. So we'll start with Margot Robbie. So she plays a character named Nellie Leroy. So her character, I guess, is a combination of different historical figures. The main one is Clara Bow. So it was based on Clara Bow when Emma Stone was set for the role. More on that in a little bit. And Clara Bow, you might know from Wings. It earned um, an Academy Award nomination. She was nicknamed the It Girl, and it was based on um, her film of the same name from 1927. So that's one of the characters you'll see. Uh, this character was also inspired by Joan Crawford, Alma Rubens, and um, I think it's Gene Eagles. And then lastly, there's there's a very specific scene in here where Margot Robbie is on her on her first film, and she's asked to cry on command and all these different variations. So that actually comes from a story about Margaret O'Brien who could cry at any level required by her director. So basically you have um, our director who, who knows all about Hollywood history, takes these prominent figures, takes all of these stories, and then we get the Nellie Leroy character. Now Brad Pitt plays Jack Conrad. He's based on actor John Gilbert, one of the silent era's most successful actors but whose career suffered an almost total collapse when they started um, to produce the talkie pictures. And what's interesting about Jack is, and just like the Brad Pitt character, um, the, the John Gilbert character, real life actor was married four times. So he, he went through a bunch of marriages, which again happens in this film, Diego Calva. So he plays Manuel Torres, or later in the film, they start referring to him as Manny. So he's inspired by a few people. He's inspired by Rene Cardona, a Cuban-born director with more than 100 film credits, Enrique Juan Vallejo, a cinematographer, and Joselito and Roberto Rodriguez, Mexican brothers who went to Hollywood and developed a sound recording system. 
So if you remember in the film, Manny gets invited to become a studio's head of sound. So again, all these early Hollywood references end up making up that character. Gene Smart in the film plays Eleanor St. John. This character is based on a couple of people, but you'll see one name pop out um, quite consistently, and it's gossip columnist Luella Parson. Okay, Jovan Adepo plays Sidney Palmer, so he is our black performer who is the musician. He's inspired by stories of Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington as they were sort of breaking into Hollywood at that time period. And so keep in mind, it, it was a very segmented Hollywood. So if you had these performers that were coming up on screen, um, they were very careful not to intermingle those performers with any white performers. And again, that pops up in the film as well. Um, Lee Jun Lee plays Lady Fei Zhu, and this is based on Anna Mae Wong. She's a real life um, Asian American actress. Not not to be confused with Anna Mae. Anna, right? May Anna May Wong. Right there, you go. <laughs> um, and and of course, this actress was also rumored to be a lesbian, which um, the character in this film takes on that attribute as well. We've got Olivia Hamilton as Ruth Adler. So this character is based on Dorothy Arzner, one of the first female directors in early Hollywood, and interesting, the inventor of the boom mic. So as she's working with <laughs> actors and actresses, you can't hit the mark. She's like, we got to have something you know that moves. And so she invents the boom mic. Um, now, those, those are all the fictional characters that are comprised of real life people stories. But you also have some characters show up that are real people. And an example is Max Minghella plays Minghella, Irving. Yeah. yeah, Minghella plays Irving Thalberg. So Irving Thalberg was a real person. Thalberg was the head of production at NGM Studios at the time. Okay. And you've already mentioned this, Jose. I mean, outside of these names, and this is just an example, because you you can go through everybody in the cast list, and more than likely they are based on either a Hollywood story, a real life person, or they're actually playing a real life person. Um, but you also get some big names. You get Olivia Wilde, Toby McGuire, Lucas Haas, and Samara Weaving show up in bit parts throughout the uh, entire uh, film. Troy. Yes. We've done it. Done what? We have connected Babylon to Solar Babies. <laughs> yes. Lucas Haas. <laughs> Lucas Haas. We did. There you go. But oh, Lucas Haas. And we we've 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 officially completed the journey. We can end mm -hmm. on this episode now, right? Yep. Was that the intent? Okay. <laughs> Couple of things on production. But also, aren't these yep. aren't these also kind of based too on uh, Kenneth Anger's Hollywood Babylon, which I had was, all of those, yep. you know, crazy. I mean, I call them urban legends, but just the stories about you know, the casting couch and finding people at like celebrity orgies slash, you know, uh, Bacchanalian parties, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So let's start there. So the, the film takes a lot of inspiration from the 1959 book, Hollywood Babylon. So the book is by filmmaker Kenneth Anger, which details the purported scandals of famous Hollywood Denzians from the 1900s to the 1950s. The book, I didn't know this, but the book was banned shortly after it was first published in the U.S. 
1965 and remained unavailable until reprinted 10 years later. Upon its second release in 1975, the New York Times said of it, if a book such as this can be said to have charm, it lies in the fact that here is a book without one single redeeming merit. The Daily Beast described Anger's book as essentially a work of fiction. There is no doubt that many, if not all, of the stories Anger shares in his slim Bible have no merit. Film historian Kevin Brownlow repeatedly criticized the book, citing Anger as saying his research method was mental telepathy mostly. So although many of Anger's claims have been denounced as untrue since the book's initial publication, it is nonetheless responsible for many oft-quoted urban legends. For example, it claimed that Clara Bow engaged in sex with the entire USC football team, including a young John Wayne. And this shows up in the film, actually. Um, and, and this whole thing has been, been debunked several times. As a matter of fact, Clara Bow's sons considered suing anger at the time of the book's second release. So uh, this book, which apparently is just trash, but it's like fun, filthy trash. All of it's made up for the most part. Um, now, when we get to the film, it was announced in July 2019 that Chazelle had set his next project following First Man as a period drama set in the golden age of Hollywood. Lionsgate Films was the front runner to acquire the project after distributing Chazelle's La La Land with Emma Stone also having worked on La La Land and Brad Pitt in the mix to star. In November, Paramount Pictures acquired worldwide rights to the project with Stone and Pitt still circling their roles. Pitt confirmed his involvement in January 2020, describing the film as being set when the silent film era transitioned into sound, and he was set to play a character modeled on actor-director um, John Gilbert. But again, if you look at Damien Chazelle's, uh, I, I guess, notes, it's supposed to be Jack Conrad. So again, it's whatever source you go to but these characters are all just uh, combinations of all these different silent stars. Uh, by December 2020, Margot Rob Roby was in early negotiations to replace Stone, who exited the film due to scheduling conflicts. So outside of that, it was just a big, uh, I don't want to say huge, but I mean, it was, it was a pretty sizable budget coming out of, um, for the most part, COVID uh, being filmed. And it was expected to, I guess, you know, be the third big critical hit for Damien. But obviously, we're sitting here talking about it now because it bombed. And Brad's fair to say it bombed theatrically, but also kind of split the critics and the audience down, mm -hmm. the, down the middle, right? Yep. Okay. Well, I've been dying to talk about this film um, since watching it. And uh, Jose, I... I loved your episode on it. I did not listen to the back part because the way watch skip works is you talk about the film and then you do a spoiler, spoiler free discussion and with your podcast, I always go back and listen once I've watched the film. Um, but I'm ready to take a quick break. And if you guys are ready, let's just dive into our thoughts on Babylon. Um, when we get back, how's that sound? Awesome. Let's do it. All right. We'll be back. Movies, it's a big date. They love their popcorn. Look what they ate. This kind of action, the main attraction. Oh boy, ain't love grand. He's buying lots of goodies, ice cream, Pepsi, and peanuts too. Living on love's not easy. You need your straight to woo. Now he returns. What's this she 
yearns. Refreshing Pepsi, a kiss he earns. Romance and pleasure, and for good measure, thirst-quenching Pepsi. For those who think young. The Disco Godfather. The Disco Godfather. Yes, I'm the Tower of Power. The man of the hour. Too sweet to be sour. Divine and guaranteed to blow your mind in a brand new movie, The Disco Godfather. This film will thrill you and fill you with satisfaction because it has a whole lot of action. See the beautiful disco skate dancers. See the daring whack attack. This film will leave you simply breathless. This film stars me, Rudy Ray Moore, as the Disco Godfather, along with Carol Speed. So everybody come on out and put your weight on it. Put your weight on it for the Disco Godfather. This film is rated R. No one under 17 admitted without a parent. Jose, uh, I look, you didn't like it when you first saw it. You wanted to just go through another three hour session of it. How did it, how did it go this time? Um, I, I think before, before I start in, I should probably say that we talked about this on our, on our episode as well. This project was shrouded in a lot of secrecy. I mean, other than the fact that he said he was going to set it like in the golden age of Hollywood they didn't really talk about the plot. They talked about the incredible cast, but then the trailers came out. But, you know, one of the things about the marketing was it never really told you what the movie was about. And a lot of the trailers just seemed to be the, the party scene, which we all know there's more than just the sort of party scene. And so I, I think that the marketing in some ways killed this too, because it just sort of was like high octane cast fantastic visuals come see us but then nobody really knew what it was about right mm-hmm. um True. but uh yeah. yeah so we so i saw it and we saw it the i saw it the first time this is this will be the second time that i've ever seen this film other than seeing it the first time when we reviewed it um and initially i went back and listened to my episode our episode and uh, i think uh my biggest complaints were it was too long um, it, it definitely, I, I think I got too dazzled by a lot of the excess and the sort of, uh, debauchery and all of the crazy visuals. I think I, I, I sort of got, uh, distracted by that and didn't really look at the narrative itself. And I felt like that the film gave a very weird mixed message. In fact, I had sort of said that, you know, in some ways Chazelle almost seemed like ungrateful, like I was going to take $80 million and I was going to make a movie that's going to be a big middle finger to the Hollywood industry. Um, so those were my first initial impressions and, and it was a skip. And when I watched it again, I think I finally got it. (laughs) I think I finally understood what 
he was trying to show, which is basically, you know, the power of movies and filmmaking, but also how that industry just takes in people, talent above and below the line, grinds them up, builds them up, tears them down, spits them back out and waits for the new talent to come in. Um, and he basically takes that and frames this tragic story of, of our main characters who get caught up in the maelstrom of, of Hollywood and more specifically the change from silent pictures to then talkies and then even to some extent to, to color, but also how that change in technology also created a bizarre Hollywood ecosystem where, you know, the media and uh, the press are sort of like, and, and the studios are sort of rubbing each other's back until they find something better or, or they conflict with, you know, oh, the story's getting out about so-and-so being a lesbian, you can't work for us anymore, right? And yet it's this big open secret there all these lavish parties are thrown you can just see them doing exactly what they're doing and then they show up on set and they're making films um do you do you still do you still think i i I just found it super interesting your initial response is that it's a big middle finger to hollywood in in the system and everything that you still described it it sounds like it still has that within it Do do you still feel that way yeah i think i i think It's definitely an indictment. And I don't know, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's because, you know, he won the Oscar and he was the toast of the town and then his next film wasn't as successful. I don't know if he wanted to like exercise some demons based on that. Um, But he's not really telling us anything we don't know about Hollywood. I mean, we see it in the press. We see it all the time. We see, um, you know, actors trying to make comebacks and and they get reviled in the press being like, your time is up, you know, same thing with directors and writers, et cetera. And, um, you know, I, I saw it this time more like just the tragedy of these characters and that opening as crazy as that opening is. And I, I love the visuals. It's, a very brilliant introduction to the characters. And I think that's why we get that title card so late is because that entire sequence is introducing us to these characters and doing it in, in kind of a brilliant way, but also a way that just, it's, it's so in your face that you kind of, I missed it the first time I saw it. I I didn't see it as an introduction. I saw it as just, Hey, look what I can do. I'm this great Oscar filmmaker. Um, but the second viewing, I, I really sort of understood the structure of it. Um, I like that it almost is like a alternate Hollywood in some ways because there are analogs to real people, but it's its own story. Um, and I don't know. I just, for whatever reasons, I really, really did get into it. I think the latter portion of the movie kind of goes south when she goes into her addiction and then there's the whole toby Maguire dark seedy underground like mob thing i think that probably could have been excluded and it still would have been a great movie to watch because there's some really really great visuals and sequences in this um yeah i think uh 
I think Chazelle is very, very talented. He does some amazing stuff here. I mentioned on our episode that he reminded me in a way of a more refined Quentin Tarantino in the respect that, you know, Tarantino sometimes, you know, he's got the gift of gab and he's got the visuals and sometimes scenes go on maybe longer than they actually should, you know, and wow. yet, uh, and yet, hold on, Brad, yet, you'll, you'll get hold it. On. You'll get a chance. <laughs> and yet, Tarantino makes them interesting to watch, even if they're lingering and entertaining to watch. And there's a lot of that going on here because um, I'm thinking in particular of the the scene where Margot Robbie is starting to do a talkie. And it's just this um, that one set guy is just going nuts. And he's like, the next person who makes a noise, I'm going to shit in their mouth and shit on it, whatever it's. And it's just so in your face and long and drawn out and torturous. And it's full of anxiety. And yet I can't tear my eyes away from it. It's fantastic. And so um, I don't know. I I came away actually loving this after oh, the second viewing, wow. even though I was like, I did not like it the first time I saw it. You did a 180 um, on this thing. I, I did a complete 180. I have ordered it on Blu-ray. Um, and I think that it's, a, I think it's a misunderstood film. Um, oh boy. And I'm, Curious to see what Chazelle does next. It's flawed, right? But the wow, is it ever really technically well done? And I take back what I said about Margot Robbie. She's actually really fucking good in this. And Brad Pitt breaks my, absolutely break, breaks my heart. I never thought he was the best actor. I thought he was really just more the sort of silent type, you know, assassination of Jesse James, California, Seven. He's good at that, you know, keeping things in and then exploding, but he is heartbreaking in this movie. Um, and so good, you know? Okay. But, uh, yeah, the, the ups and the downs of everybody's career in this film, how you can be like, you know, cock of the walk one day, next day, feather duster as auntie entity says in Mad Max beyond Thunderdome. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's, I don't know for, for an insider like me who loves, the uh you know how movies are made and and all of that um yeah it's a vision it's it's um i kind of dug it the second time around and, and and yet in both viewings you still think it's super critical of, of the hollywood system absolutely very critical okay um yeah because there are there you know there's it's there's it's weird it's the process of making a movie i think what he shows in this film too is that initially in silent pictures it was so chaotic right because you didn't have to worry about the sound you only had to worry about like the vision and then you would you know the images and then you would just put in whatever you needed with the titles later but with the technology in progress it made it that much more difficult for for movies to be made and for everybody to do what they're supposed to do on the set and there are clashes there's clashes between talent the technology, the sound guy, the director, the assistant AD, all of it. And then the studio head walks in and he's looking. And then to make things worse with the whole, you know, the gossip columnist and how are we going to rehab this actress who's bad, you know, and what are the fake things we're going to do at these little parties to show, you know, et cetera. Um, and then how that affects the talent and the people below the line, you know? Um, yeah, I just found it so much more powerful. I guess knowing what to expect in that three hour run. Okay. Yeah. That's fair. I loved it. Well, Brad, this was your yes. pick. 
I, I find it interesting that last week I picked a film uh, about a stuntman, an aging stuntman dealing with the changes going on in the film industry. And you pick Babylon, which is about the film industry going from the silent era into the talkies. So um, you and I must have been sharing a brain for like two weeks in a row. We've been friends for a long time. So we're, we're, we're starting to think of mind share one brain mind meld. Yeah. But yeah, <laughs> would, you picked this. Where did you land on it? Was this a first time watch for you? And you had seen it before. I had seen it before. Okay. Um, I watched it. I guess it was in March when it came out. I was really curious about it because it is subject matter that I'm really interested in. I love kind of the formation of talkies in that first few years of Hollywood transitioning um, and becoming the Hollywood that we know today and then transitioning into color. <clears throat> and, and, you know, it's, it's hard for me not to compare this to something like once upon a time in Hollywood, which is, you know, further on it's 1969 here. I think the furthest we get is like 52 by the end. Um, you know, so the timelines are a little different, but you know, Rick is a star of, the 1950s um, Rick Dalton in, in Hollywood. But um, you know, this is a definite, like a film kind of about decadence as, as well. Everything in this film is decadent. Uh, the cocaine is, you know, everywhere in this movie. And it makes me feel like I'm on cocaine watching this. It's, it's <laughs> like the third act of Goodfellas mixed in with once upon a time in Hollywood. Like it's just weird and, and, it's got scenes where, you know, someone is pissing on a man and then it's got Margot Robbie, um, you know, dancing on a bar and crying and, and then her getting bit by a snake. And like the stuff that happens in this film is, is it, it, you definitely go on a journey. Um, and there are some moments character wise that I think are very powerful. Um, the jazz player who is the only black guy in the film, Sydney um, has one of the more powerful scenes in the film where he has to basically make himself blacker um, because he's the guy under the light and he's, he doesn't look as, you know, as dark as the rest of the guys and him kind of like battling with himself to, to make that choice. And there's the scene with Brad Pitt as he, you know, gives the guy a tip and walks up to his room and, so there are, there are a lot of things in this film to like, I, I struggled with this. I think it's weird. I think I liked this more the first time I saw it because it was just so in your face and weird. And again, there's so much excess going on in this film. I mean, it's a film of decadence and excess and all that. And you know, hedonistic uh, activities as a uh, movie God would say. Um, and, and I like it. Like it is, there is, they are unleashing everything. And, you know, I'm starting to wonder if Damien is just making movies to show that he likes jazz music. Like, I think we get it by now. Like you like jazz. Cool. Like, that's great. Well, um, let, let me ask you this. I mean, is he, is he making movies, to show that he likes jazz music or is he really trying to make that non-traditional musical? 
Like I, I, I feel like he's chasing down. He, he understands the MGM studio musical isn't going to fly with today's audiences. Mm -hmm. So is he really trying to create like the, the modern day musical with modern day sensibilities? That, I mean, that could be true. I mean, that first, once you get the, we get past the elephant and we're at the party and everything is going on. I mean, it's basically a jazz musical yeah. for what feels like 20 minutes and it might be even longer than that. And yeah, no one's really singing, but jazz is the, basically the front and center of that piece. Now there are conversations that happen, but you know, it is centered around these guys playing jazz music in the, you know, live whatever room it is. Um, so you're probably right. Like it is probably a, a mechanism for him to say, I can't make a movie where jazz music is the center piece, but I can form a really, uh, strong picture around early Hollywood and make jazz on the periphery, but it's not really like, it's going to be kind of there as well to help move the, the, the pace along. And, you know, I, sh I'm struggling because like, I love old Hollywood. I love all that stuff. I love music, uh, movie history, like Jose, I'm fascinated with the way the films are made. You know, I, I don't know as much about him, like with film and, and all that stuff and, and, and how that stuff goes, but I still am fascinated by all that. So on that piece, I'm like a, like on a scholar level, I want to like this movie a lot more than I do. And I think performance wise, it also has a lot to like, I think if you walk away from this and don't think Margot Robbie is one of the best actors in Hollywood, I think you're insane like she is brilliant in this movie i think if you walk away and say that brad pitt is a one-trick pony i think you're insane like this is maybe one of his best performances of all time and i love the cliff blue character um you know i think that's like one of the best hangout characters i in ever but here like he is doing so much um you know his his uh i guess his like producer or manager like dies um in yeah. Like he wears that on his face. Like it is so good. And so there's so much for me to like, but there are scenes in this that go on way too long. And Jose, you were talking about like the, the her missing her mark and the sound and all that stuff. Like, and then you like brought up like, Oh, if Tarantino did it, it'd be better. Like, yes, I feel like that is a scene where someone has seen a Tarantino film, tries to recreate it. And it just feels like it goes on for way too long. Like it is, there's just, I, I like the kinetic nature of the scene and the camera going back and forth. And we're going to go up to the sound guy. We're going to go guy with a camera. We're going to go here. We're going to show the direct, like the camera is hectic. I like that. I just think the scene is way too long. The scene with the snake is so dumb. I think it's so <laughs> stupid. Um, I get, I get it. Like, I, I like say uh fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Like it's got, that's got some of this in there as well, where you're just like kind of random stuff, but it were so high that it makes sense. Um, then the Toby McGuire, like there's just stuff in here that I'm, I'm like, I, I feel like we just did this to kind of be random in a way. And I think 
Damien is a better director than that. And, and maybe I'm just not smart enough to kind of pick up on what they're trying to do. But I guess that the, like, I, I just, I struggled with this the second time because I felt the runtime basically after when it says Babylon, there's like two hours and 40 minutes left. And I felt it this time at the first time I felt like I, I didn't, this time I I struggled. Like I I hit pause to see how much time was with, left. Like twelve times, to- like ten to twelve times. Like I was <sighs> struggling to get through this. Um, and that's with me like really appreciating a lot of the performances. But I just I just struggled. I just really struggled. I just think there is a good forty five minutes in this where you could cut, and I think the film doesn't really change that much. Do you, do you agree? With it's Hose? just bloated. But again, this movie is all about excess. So maybe it's just, but like, I, I, I don't know how you turn this into the studio and say, here's my three hour film, my three hour film. We're going to make back our $80 million. Cause you, there was no way this is, was ever going to be successful. So that, that excess, uh, cause it's, it's three hours of excess. Yeah. Do you, do you, view it the same way Jose does where um, Chazelle is is saying, okay, this is the dark CD part of Hollywood and it's an indictment against it. Or is he obsessed with that excess and he glorifies it? I mean, two things to be true at the same time. Like Eyes Wide Shut is like an, an excess film mm-hmm. and it's got a lot of like the inspirations for this film are there. Um, and I think Eyes Wide Shut is, is another one that you can kind of point to, um, you know, I, I was thinking about it cause you got a lot of time to think when you watch this movie is like, is this going to be like a conspiracy theorist, like wet dream in a few <laughs> years where they go back and they're like, see Damien Chazelle was trying to tell us about, you know, the, the Illuminati, uh, the Illuminati and all this stuff. I'm like, Oh God, you know what? You probably could, this probably could be like, you know, you've got the slowed down, I've got five on it uh, underneath and someone on TikTok is making this. If you could, if you watch this scene in Babylon, it's, you know, here's the baby and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, Oh God. But I, <laughs> yeah, I, I just, uh, I don't know, man. I still struggle with this because I want to like it. I want to love it. Actually. I want to love this movie, uh, but I just can't, I don't even know if I like it anymore. Oh, Wow. Which is which is weird because I felt the runtime the first time I didn't the second time, and uh, more to like what Brad was saying. I think he's doing both. I think he's like, I think he's exalting movie making, but giving us its trappings in but in the context of this like tragic story with these characters. Is that hypocritical though? Of course it is, as but a, I think that's a, what a, that's so where Chazelle is rather is, than hypocritical that's the space he's occupying. Yeah, and I agree with you, Brad. Like both things can can exist at the same time, right? Yeah, but what's he like saying? If I made a movie about corporate America, I'm like, well, I live in that area. Like I can't say too much because I would be pointing the finger back at me. Oh, well, yes, and there there is that in here, but I guess what, like, what's the point of it? So here he he just really just lavishes this, this film with all of these stories that the, all of the, all of the, I, I don't know, tabloid like filth that exists with like the Hollywood Babylon book, right? It's all on display here. But then you get this whole third act sequence 
where we get a lesson on the history of films visually through like a, a jazz scene where it's all celebrated. So I, I'm but like, you just spent two hours and 45 minutes, like pretty much taking a shit on all of that. And then by the, at the end, you're like, here's avatar. You're like, Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a little, cool. little bit of Tron. There you go. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll be honest. My, my first reaction before the title card showed up on screen, which is 30 minutes into the film. So the first 30 minutes is what you talked about, Jose, um, which is the, what you, you use this term very loosely, brilliant, um, 30 <laughs> minutes. Uh-oh. When, once you get there, you get another two and a half hours, right? So when I got to that title card, I, I was watching this with the family. I, I just turned to everybody's like, I, I absolutely hate this film. 30 minutes into it, absolutely hate this film. So I really had this knee jerk reaction to all the vul- the, the vulgarity and the debauchery that's on screen. I clutched Uh-oh, my Pru- pearls. Troy's coming. I did. I clutched my pearls so many times. Yeah. It's, it really is tr- truly transgressive cinema and it's, I mean, there's a, there's a little person yeah. with a giant dick. And then at some point in time, it spews He's out white off. stuff. Yeah. 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 You get, you yeah. get a, you get a whole um, song and dance sequence uh, of, about this, this woman in her, you know, vagina. Yes. Um, it's, her it's girls vagina. By yeah. The way. It's a, it's a oh, lady yeah. singing about a woman's hoo hoo dilly. And, um, <laughs> you, and you get a, <laughs> you get elephants crapping on people. Um, a woman peeing on fat no, guys. It's pro it's prolonged shitting on people. Prolonged, like it's prolonged. Yes. It's very prolonged sex everywhere. Uh, but the, the, the best way to describe the first 30 minutes is it's aggressive and obnoxious. Those, those are the two adjectives and it's hitting you every minute. Here's something else, right? Some of it is, uh, tied to some rumors or urban legends or real life things. The fatty Arbuck, uh, I think it's fatty Arbuckle, uh, mm-hmm. scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, and I get it. Hollywood in the twenties, it was insane and crazy, right? That's the first 30 minutes. Um, and I'll give it this, it grabs your attention and here's the thing. I agree with you, Jose. It is introducing all of the characters of the film within the 30 minutes. The biggest problem, though, is I immediately don't like any of these characters after those 30 minutes. And now I have to follow them around for another two and a half hours. Like, I I was, I really was dreading You didn't this like film. Jack? You didn't like Jack the first time you saw him? I don't like anything. I, I think it's, you, you, you put these characters, no matter how good, sweet... Um, well intent they are as characters, you get none of that outside of they're in this environment. They they are actively in this environment. Hired help or not, they're in this environment. And this environment is again loud and obnoxious and and it's just it's great. If you put them at the Fidelio, if you put them at the Fidelio party, you're not gonna like them. We get it. Yeah, got it. So <laughs> but when okay, once you get past the shocking and obnoxious parts, and especially the 30 minutes, um, and you you constantly get this quick pan to simulate chaos. So the camera goes right to left, right to left all the time. Um, you run into so once you get past the obnoxiousness. You, you then run into segments of a director full of himself 
and being super pretentious about the importance of film. I don't think he's being critical of Hollywood. I think he's saying, look at all these crazy stories about Hollywood. But more importantly, it's two and a half hours of movies are so important, especially to the common person. And get ready for a pretentious sermon, folks. So I, I found the most ironic and comical thing, which I don't think it's supposed to be funny, is Brad Pitt lecturing his Broadway wife on the importance of film and how pretentious Broadway is, but his trade reaches more people. So the irony, the irony in that scene of a Hollywood actor being pretentious and calling out Broadway for being pretentious was inadvertently funny, in my opinion. But it also shows how shitty the screenplay is. Um, in my opinion, not the performance, just the words on the paper. Um, Joey, let, let me, let me ask you this. Cause yeah. I was thinking about that too. We watched Hugo. Yeah. And Hugo is basically a, a love letter to film as well. Do you think Hugo handled it better than Babylon? Or do you think Babylon handled it better than Hugo? I think Hugo does it better because there's something about Hugo that doesn't come off as pretentious. And I, I wonder if it's the relationship between the filmmaker and the boy, mm -hmm. like a lot of the, a lot of these things, it comes off as it could be the timing. It could be the performance. It could be the screenplay. It could be a combination of everything. But to me, it could be that Martin Scorsese has 40 years of filmmaking behind him it, and he knows kind of how to do it. But yeah. And, and Scorsese may not linger on it and is a bit more subtle with it and maybe gives you a history lesson. I mean, even in Hugo, it's not very subtle, but here it's, it's yeah, it's really in your face. It's Hugo, an elephant shitting on a man. It is. Subtle, it's so. an elephant shitting in your face about the importance of movies. Whereas Scorsese may get a little preachy, but you're getting it through this relationship and I buy it a little bit easier. Like the pill isn't choking me. Yeah. I, that's kind of how I took it. Yeah. And then you get another scene where a gossip columnist is lecturing Brad Pitt on the immortality of film and how he's got it good. Right. Oh, and then um, this, is, this is where I lost it. So you get this scene with Brad Pitt um, doing a romantic scene because he's making his transition to sound. And uh, he does a scene and he goes, I love you. I love you. I love you. I'm like, uh-oh. All right. We're, we're making a reference to Singing in the Rain. I get it. Because this movie is filled with a ton of references. There's a point when in, in the beginning of the film where Brad Pitt is just quoting famous movie lines, even from The Terminator and Gone with the Wind, but changes a word in it. And it's supposed to be kind of funny, right? Um, and I had this thought when that scene occurred. And it was like, man, this, this better not lead to somebody watching Singing in the Rain later. Because that yeah. would just be... That, I mean, Damien is might be stupid enough to reference one of the greatest films of all times, but he's not so stupid that he would have the individual sitting there watching singing in the rain, which he's making the anti singing in the rain for all intent and purpose in some regard. And this goes back to our discussion with the flash when they start referencing back to the future. And if you're not sold into that film and you start referencing better films, you're like, you're like, I'm going to go watch that movie. Gonna, yeah. And it's shorter too. Um, hell, I could stop it right now at the hour and a half mark, go watch singing the rain. And I still would have spent three hours. Right. Um, and then you hey, get, spoiler alert, Joy, they, they, they watch singing in the rain in this movie. They, they do. They do that. And then they it's, even sang it before. Well, too. yeah. Um, yeah, but, but it, 
you not you not only get him watching singing in the rain and realizing oh my god they made a movie about my life and and my friend's life going through all this stuff he starts crying um so he's so depressed but then he has flash forwards of all of the things that hollywood has done and its progression through technology etc leading up to avatar um and hammering home again how important movies are uh, you just couldn't spell it out anymore. Like, I don't think this is a criticism of Hollywood. I think both things are true to that extent, but his, between being obnoxious and pretentious, it's really hard to like this film. Now, with that said, um, one other thing. At some point, you can do too many single tracking shots. You really can. Yeah. I think this movie is proof of that. Um, it is a technical marvel that you can get all of this chaos on screen in one take, uh, but after a while, it just loses its impact, and you start. You could turn it into a drinking game. How many one-shot takes can he fit in a three-hour film? And, and that's. And I'm glad you brought that up because by the end of it, I was like, I know they just did a one but. They've done so many that Who cares? I like, it's not even special anymore. It is. So, uh, and, and okay. All of that stuff is my biggest problems with the film is it's obnoxious and it's pretentious. It's in your face and it feels amateurish. It really feels amateurish, which is surprising. Cause I'm, I'm, when I look at that aspect of it, I'm like, do I, I need to go back and watch La La Land or even, um, well, hell, any of his films, because all of his films, I'm like, well, this guy's like one of the the greatest directors working now. And I watched this thing and I'm like, ooh, uh, I need to go revisit that. And uh, we, we might have to, you know. No, come. Whiplash is still a brilliant film. Trust me. I, I agree. I, I've seen yeah. that thing so many times. I love it. But here's the thing. With all of that said, it still has some amazing things in it. The performances you guys have talked about. So you kind of should see the movie just to see Margot Robbie. Um, I mean, she's pretty spectacular. The crying on command sequence, uh, I, I thought was a lot of fun. I, I agree with you, Brad, the, the first sound um, sequence that she's going through where they get to take 17, it goes on a little bit, but I love her in it and watching her get more and more frustrated and, and just trying to you know hold that in. And hearing her say motherfucker is it's priceless. Um, yes. I want that and to be my guy dropping tone. dead. At, oh, <laughs> and the guy dropping dead at the end was, I thought was hysterical. It, yeah. I it's know, really dark I comedy. Yes. I love it when beautiful women use the F word. Yeah. It's just, I, I the love F- the moment. Why did I say the F word? Yeah. When they use fuck. <laughs> they, uh, I, I love the moment where she shares a taxi cab with Manny to mm-hmm. go visit her mom. I, I love that sequence. And towards the but, end, like there, I do like that, but the mom stuff like is immediately dropped. It is like there's, and that's a good point. There's all these sequences like the taxi cab ride or all these other things. There's, there's you, her performance is so good, but cohesively it is all over the place. Kind of like this film. Like you could have, you could have like your, cause you're show the, the purpose of that scene is to show that Manny and uh, Nellie are bonding or getting closer. Yeah you don't need them walking into the asylum or whatever that is to get that point. Like that car ride does that job. I I also think it's in reference because it's Jose. Do you have a kid? 
Your Honor. <laughs> well, well, I was, I mean, I was going to say that that is a setup for later when it becomes very clear that Nellie, you know, she has something to prove and she can't, she knows. So in those sequences, she knows who she is. She knows where she comes from and that should be enough. But she gets swindled by the Hollywood lifestyle. And when people start to order her to do things, she tries to change her image and she sort of goes the extreme opposite direction, which leads to the rattlesnake biting her fucking neck. Right. Well, we we because, know she's from Jersey. We know she's a trash person already. <laughs> no, no, no. Truly, wow. truly. But I mean, I'm just saying, but I'm just saying, like, I think that scene is is that set up for the later payoff when she when she just can't take the Hollywood system telling her who she has to be, what she has to do. And then there's that freak out scene when she's at the party where she's got all the stuff on her and she's like, this is what the deranged animal from Jersey does, which I love. I love that scene. Um, but, but I think if you're going to like make cuts, I think you could cut that scene after she gets out of the car and it's totally fine. So I had talked about before, Troy, not to step on um, the rest of the rest of your review, but I, so I, I, had mentioned before that I understand I understood the narrative structure better. So we've got our intro, and then we have um, all of the players in in the silent films and how they're capturing that. And then we segue to the how all the players change with the talkies. And then the last part of it is how these characters then deal with either being marginalized or being told to do what they what what they don't want to do all in the service of films or their time has come like Brad Pitt and what the fallout is from that. So in my mind the jazz guy is the only one who was strong enough to be like I see this for what it is and I'm leaving. Like he literally after he does the I, makeup I don't I don't think he walks so. by I think and he's like I'm not coming back. Lee Jun Lee does the same thing. You have two characters. She does too. Yeah, you're right. They, she, they both she walks away exit as well. gracefully, knowing yeah. that it, their time is done. Um, Although Lee Jun Lee did not have a choice in that because Calvis comes to her and is like, we can't use you. You're, you know, you're, you're poison goods. You're a lesbian, basically. But like, to, to that point, it's your, these are the, our only two minority characters which is probably easier for them to leave because their opportunities in Hollywood were few and far between anyway. Yeah. True. For, for, True. for Sydney, he was always performing for the white people. And so like, yeah. And that that's, he was always the with. help. He yeah. and Calvis were always the help, but like there's that scene where he's sitting there and the, the party guests, the rich party guests come to him and they're like, they're like, oh, you're so fantastic. I would have voted we for Obama you. the third time. <laughs> <laughs> but they're like, you know, you're fantastic. We love you. Oh, we just love how the Negroes are being cast into the films now. It's fantastic. And he's sort of like, this is, it's not an aim that I have. I just wanted to play music, yeah. you know? I, and uh, yeah. I, I just got to say, the script isn't good. I, I So here's the thing. I think it is. You, you keep, I, I, I didn't think I didn't think, think it, I think this I didn't think it was the trash. first time. No, no, I no. didn't think it was the first time. I think it's I think it's better than we think it is. I think it's hot garbage. I'll 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 explain <laughs> why. Um, it's from Jersey. This this script is from Jersey. <laughs> okay, it's a deranged animal from Jersey. So I'm gonna, I'm going to steal something. Uh, what you should do 
is go back and watch um, Trey Parker and Matt Stone talk to a screenwriting class. And they use this theory. So if, if you think about South Park, I'm comparing South Park to Babylon because both actually <laughs> have uh, sort of this obnoxious sort of in-your-face storytelling elements, right? South Park just yeah. takes it to the edge. So does Babylon. But what's interesting is, and when, when I saw them explain this, I'm like, yeah, to me, it is uh, how they explain this concept really is something that Hollywood needs to learn from. Because South Park's been going on for a long time, and I actually think what they were doing in the beginning versus today, still good stuff. They have way more hits than misses, but they stick to a very basic storytelling premise. So when they talk about things, they are always looking at events, story elements, etc. And when an event happens, the next question they're asking is, the story should go into a therefore or but, okay? So event happens, therefore this happens. Sort of a cause and effect, right? An event happens, but this happens, so it takes the story in a different direction. This film, unfortunately, has too many and-then moments. And and-then moments are basically saying... It's one scene going to the next scene, going to the next scene with no connective tissue theme or anything else of that nature, almost vignettes. And it's almost like taking your characters and your audience and kind of spinning them in a circle. And the, the, biggest, the biggest example I can think of is the Tobey Maguire sequence. And I, I would actually be able to sit down and actually do more scenes this way. The, the Rattlesnake one's another one. But it, it, let's just talk about the Tobey Maguire sequence for a second. So in the story, Nellie loses a bunch of money to mobsters, right? So she goes running to Manny. And they're going to kill her if she doesn't pay them back. She establishes that, right? So what happens? Um, from there, the story should either do a therefore or but um, because that's going to have an effect. But instead, it does an and then. They basically go meet the mobster. You go to the underground. There's some fake money. All of this stuff happens. Manny gets away. Yeah, it turns into a Coen Brothers film for a little bit. Yeah, and at the end of it, an alligator. After the Tobey Maguire sequence, the mob is still out to kill her because she didn't pay them back. Nothing changed at all. It was an and then moment. It just kept dragging out this plot point. So take out that sequence, take out that entire sequence, and you have the same story. It doesn't affect anything whatsoever. But do you get to see Nathan Suplice keep spitting all the time? You know, and oh I, I'm okay if I didn't see that. Um, yeah. Why would and why was McGuire dressed like a fucking ghoul? Well, and why he was like a zombie or he had yeah. like syphilis or something? He but was that's disgusting. That's the whole problem with this film is it is the screenplay has way too many and then moments versus an event happens and it's a therefore we get or it. But. You have an English degree. Good. No, gosh. just I'm, I, again, I'm stealing this, but if, if you go back and you watch think, how tight yeah. some of those South park episodes are and how they can take a story and cram so much into it, there's very economical and efficient storytelling that doesn't miss that doesn't really miss a comedic bit. Right. And this movie is really trying to be funny in some places, but the problem is, um, and, and 
I can't believe you, you <laughs> Tarantino doesn't have this problem. Mm-hmm. If you go back to look at his films, he, he doesn't have and thens. I, I would say you go back to his films and even though his scenes may to some people drag, those elements are still propelling those characters into something else. It's not propelling it into the same situation with a different variety. But when you're given a three hour runtime, you're allowed to end then your whole way through it. You're not. If you're if you're going to take three hours of my time, you don't get to and then me. You're going to no. But what I'm saying is, if you were to take two hours, maybe you're a little bit more tight. But here, you don't have to be because you're you've got this excess runtime. I don't. I think that's the pro. But to me, that's the problem with with these modern films. You can have three hour films, and maybe they have one of these and then moments here and there. But there are a lot of three hour films out there that just it continues to keep the audience engaged because you feel like you're going somewhere with those characters. You may not even have to like those characters, but my problem is after three hours in this world, amazing performances, some, some fantastic technical achievements in cinematography, that music, oh my God, that music is fantastic. There are parts on here that are just some of the best I've seen in cinema all year. The problem is I th- I really think the screenplay is wonky. Maybe it's not total shit, but the screenplay is certainly wonky. And I th- man, I I really think Damien needed a good editor. He needed somebody to basically say stop masturbating all over the screen and get to tell your story. It is very masturbatory okay, for sure. I agree with that. I think Troy, I think if you I think if you watch it again, I think you will see some of the things that that you think weren't in there that are in there. I think it's a, like I said, I uh, I was able to follow. I think the narrative and what the character characters go through. And I had no problem. Look, I had no problem I following think- following the narrative. I and I get the whole thing. Like this, this actually reminds me a lot of Right On. And Right On, we talked about this line that Jackie gives, where it's it's easy it's easier to jump down it's harder to like walk down or something of that nature. I can't remember the mm. exact line, mm-hmm. but yeah. it's, it's really, you're dealing with a stunt man who is struggling with this. My time's over. It, it has sunset. And what's really interesting about this film is it's kind of Brad Pitt. It, it's it. I don't know. It feels like that jock from high school um, who, you know, the uncle Rico character from Napoleon dynamite who can't let go yeah. of high school Right. This movie is about a bunch of characters who can't let go of the golden age of the roaring 20s of Hollywood and are just are dealing with their own mortality and this whole possibility that somebody is going to replace them, but they had their time and and they will be that footnote in history. And then you have other characters who handled that gracefully are are two characters we just talked about. So it yeah. it there is a lot of depth there, but it gets lost. In, it does. In, and I, but in, I think that that's, I think that's the whole, what you just said is the point behind the whole film. It is, but, but it's, it's buried all, in a bunch of shit because, well, it's elephant it's buried shit. In the, it's buried <laughs> in the spectacle because that's what, so Chazelle is, he's a, he's very much like I talked about how whiplash was structured almost like a jazz song. Sure. And he, he does this a lot with his work. Like he weaves in, 
music and, you know, these creative images. And so when we're talking about like big, big, big Hollywood, I think that's the story he wants to tell, but he did it in a big, big Hollywood spectacle kind of way. And that conversation between uh, Gene Smart and Brad Pitt, I think is the entire thesis of the film where she says, it almost sounds like it's a, it's a defense to her writing that bad article about him. Like, oh, you, they don't need me. But I think that's the entire thesis of it, which is all this type of story is going to continue on and on and on in Hollywood. Um, oh, I, hey, I got it. It's they always speak graceful that, the, that he's the, like part of the film. It's always uh, good when the, when the movie tells you what it's about. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that again, I that's... Mean, that's the problem. Well, there's there's always a thesis scene in every screenplay. It's just that, you know, I think I think we've all talked about that, that Chazelle is, Troy, you say obnoxious. I say on too on the nose with stuff. I groaned seeing that montage at the end. I was like, Jesus it's terrible. Christ, it's, I couldn't why? I could not turn the movie off quick enough the second time I saw it. Like, I know the singing at the rain part. And I'm like, OK, I'm done. Yeah, I, like look, yeah. So there was no need for so, that. Yeah. And then the ke- the chemicals in the water yes. and the colors, I was like, oh, fuck. Look, it's that's masturbating. It is all sugar <laughs> and it's no sugar rush is my it's problem. Co- with it's it. cocaine. It is all it's cocaine. It's all cocaine, um, but no cocaine rush, I guess. I don't know. It's it's big. It's sprawling. It's over the top. It's manic. It's ambitious, loud in your face. Look, at times it's freaking unforgettable. When Margot's on screen... Uh, you are fixated on her performance. When Brad Pitt um, is doing some introspection, I agree with you. It, it is what very What did you guys think of Manny? I liked him too. He has the harder role though, I think, because- He gets lost. Like the, the problem he is does, I think he, he gets, gets lost. lost. Like, yeah. He, he's His a American mechanism. dream sort of <laughs> journey yeah. gets really lost. And it is, yeah. I, I wonder if it's just- if you can make this work with just Margo and, and Pitt, if, if if that could, because I just think he is so, yeah, like he just he just gets lost. It's just hard with the three main characters. I, I think you're supposed to connect to him as he's going through this journey or this spectacle, and yeah. and you are seeing things through his eyes. the The problem is there's there's no connective tissue to that character or, or anything emotion outside. If he just pines for Margot Robbie, like I need something more than that. Um, I, I read a thesis about him and how the movie tries to tackle sort of um, like minorities' identity crisis within Hollywood or in the U.S. and how you know when he becomes uh, big in Hollywood, he's he starts to say, "Oh no no no, I'm Manny," right? So. He, he tries to Americanize his name. Yeah, he so, loses the main well. Yeah, so there are aspects of it that subtly are there that are kind of interesting, but that's the problem. It, he gets lost. That would have been in an it. interesting movie. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> look, it's it. Here's the thing: it it wants to be a film so bad, but at the end of the day, it's just a movie with illusions of grandeur. I, I, it just it it's a it really wants to be art, but art to me has to be memorable and impactful and it has to have this lasting impactfulness to you right to me it's like yep it's transgressive it's got its moments but outside of that soundtrack uh maybe some of margo's performances i think it's pretty forgettable and why Mm. and why did they handle her death as like a little splice in a newspaper and that's it i because that's that's how fame goes sometimes 
I get you're it. Mar- but- you're Marilyn Monroe, and then they find you dead in a hotel. I get it. You know, it's I- it's. And yeah. she disappears like into the darkness. It into was kind of like, yeah. yeah. And you're like, what happens? You know? And yeah. then there's that, that blurb found dead at 34. Yeah, I, just like, know? just like on right. When we talked about right on and we said, Hey, I think the director is getting in the way of a good film there. I, I kind of feel like <laughs> Chazelle might be his own worst enemy on this thing, to be quite honest. Maybe. I, I think this leaves one of the worst tastes in your mouth film endings I've ever seen. It's up there, man. And that might be my problem. Yeah. Like between the beginning and the end, it comes out swinging. And like I said, I, I'm my reaction to that first 30 minutes was I hated it, but I think that was the intent. Oh, I, I love the first 30 minutes. Yeah. I love the first 30 minutes. I, I, I pre- let me put it this way. It's I fantastic. appreciate because getting away from it after the movie's over, I'm like, oh, I get it. And boy, did it, did it do its job in the first 30 minutes. So I totally get it, and I appreciate it for that. But between the beginning and the end, outside of, okay, that's a memorable first 30 minutes, and what a crappy ending, the stuff in the middle just has no connective tissue. Outside of some pretty good performances, great soundtrack. I think the message message is the medium, but I think Chazelle went a little overboard. I think- A little? Yeah. (laughs) I think he went a lot overboard to be quite honest. I know. I, I love my second viewing. I, yeah, I'll say this. I, I told myself that after it was over, it was like, well, I will watch that again at some point now that I know what I'm getting into, which I may have the same reaction as you, Jose, because there are so many things I do love about the film, but, yeah. but, but it reminds me of the flash. Like when, when you get to the highs, man, it's really high. When you get to the lows, they're so low. in this one more so than the flash in my opinion when we talked about that one um but i do you think any do you do you think any youngins picked up the whole eric stoltz back to the future thing from flash like i i don't think anybody caught that honestly i don't know for people my age or nerds you know it's like why would you put that in your movie i don't know well who's who's gonna who's gonna pick up anything about you know clara bow so true um and you know the the whole mother in the the sanatorium and stuff like that. I think it's supposed to add this level of hey, this is she's always going to be battling with that because it might be hereditary, but also that is a callback to one of the actresses she's based on, whose mother was in the sanatorium. So th- this yeah. film's interesting because you can definitely tell he did his homework, he did his research. Um, he's trying to take all of this old Hollywood and and just cram it in there. But I also think it's a director. I, I'm going to say this, and I don't, I don't even know if it's totally formulated in my head, but it feels like a director that's too close to the material, like he's too in love with it. Um, yeah. He almost needed to come back a little bit and just go, uh, yeah, I, I need to edit this down a little bit. I, I I need to take these 30 minutes out or tighten it up. I need to get rid of some of these and-then moments and make sure these characters are being propelled to um, a story arc or a change or something of that nature. I never did any of the research. I mean, I was discussing this with a friend of mine and and she was like, yeah, that's Hollywood Babylon and that's Claire Bow and that's, you know, Anna, Anna Mae Wong. Um, and I was sort of was like, eh. I mean, I, I don't think it changes it if you don't know it. I mean, I was entertained by it. Yeah, I, I don't um, think you have to know it. I think it's like if you really like this film, you can enjoy it on another level by just going through and. 
having a cliff notes and just saying, oh yeah, now I want to, you know, I want to go watch Clara Bow films and, and see what the big deal was and how she transitioned, um, you know, from silent films to, to the talkies or something of that nature. But at the end of the day, I watched this thing and I'm like, well, geez, it, it <laughs> singing the rain. Um, I, I mean, it's probably, it is my favorite film of all time, you know, next to Drunken Master two, but <laughs> there, <laughs> there's something about that film <laughs> that it managed to take, the, the same subject matter, and it's obviously doing something entirely different, but it made it way more memorable than some of the things in this film. Yeah. Also, also two things. One, the crazy German director, that's Spike Jones. Spike Jones, yep. yep. Who I adore. And then in our His episode, second favorite performance is, well, he's better than Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> yes, definitely, definitely. But I did like I him here where he's dick. like, he's like, you, you, you bring me camera and he like kisses uh, Calvis. And then the other thing was I likened Margot Robbie's energy in this film to Elizabeth Berkeley and showgirls um, on our episode. Like she has that. I see like, that. Yeah. <laughs> She's <laughs> so good. I mean, I agree. I agree with your guys' comment. I mean, it, this is crazy. Like I, I think you should watch it for her and Brad Pitt, but I would also say I, I wouldn't be surprised if you come away loving it or hating it, yeah. but you can't deny that those two are, they're just amazing in it. Yeah. And that sounds credit, credit to uh Mary Zoffries, the costume designer, that red dress she wears. I'm like, Oh my God. Wow. I love that. I love that in the beginning. I and it connects to the solar baby. So, you know, Oh, perfect. <laughs> yes. Of course. <laughs> Uh, I'm, gl- I'm glad I watched it. I, I mean, you guys have seen it twice now. I'm curious to go revisit it, but it, it's going to be a while. Like I'll, I'll watch singing in the rain, like five, six more times before I ever see this again. Um, but yeah, no, I hate. So any, any other thoughts on this thing? I mean, I could see myself watching that first 30 minutes and just kind of showing it off to people. Um, you better be careful I, about who you show that first. 30 yeah. Minutes yeah. To. Hey mom, check this out. Um, no. uh, <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No, I just, I, it was, I don't know. I'll, I'll probably watch it again a couple of weeks from now. And yeah, man, you got too much time. I'm interested to see, I'm interested to see what he does next. I do like the soundtrack though. It is a frequent listen for me. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic. I think it's the, the track voodoo mama or something on there that, yeah, my goodness, you just crank that thing up. And I I'll, I'll say this one thing about the music. Um, the music does a very good job, I think, even more so than the direction or the screenplay at projecting maybe the chaos and the manicness of some scenes. Yeah, uh, and it does. A, I think it even does a better job of propelling um, some of the kinetic energy in the filming more so than the dialogue or the camera movement. Uh, yeah. it, it's crazy. Like it sticks it out. It sets the mood. It sets, it sets the, the mood. mood. It, it really keeps everything at a brisk pace. And when it's slow, it's slow. I mean, uh, the Manny and um, Nelly theme that they play a couple of times is very haunting. It's yeah. really good. But yeah, I I got to say it's one of the best soundtracks I've heard all year, to be quite honest. Such a weird it's movie. Stuff. It's it, Man, it's got all... I mean, it really has some huge highs. But dude, I, I really... I would really be curious to hear everybody else's opinion on this who's seen the film. I'm sure it's all over the place too. Yeah. It's got to be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a 7.1 on IMDb. I was like, what? That amazes me. But yeah. To be quite honest. I thought it'd be more like a 5.8. <laughs> I, 
I actually thought it would, I don't know if, I don't know. I was probably thinking six T- to me. Six is that one that you've probably got equal parts. Like, Oh, that's terrible. Equal parts. Like that's a masterpiece. It could be yeah. one of those films that 10 years from now, everybody goes back to revisit and says, Oh yeah, that, that pretty much changed the, the musical, the modern day musical at some point. Yeah. So, all right, Jose, I'll just ask you the question. Um, you got a chance to revisit this for a second time. You didn't like it the first time you said, skip it, but what about now? Is it a bomb? It is not a bomb. <laughs> it is a big mixed message spectacle. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I think re- I think further viewings reward the watcher. So not a bomb. Okay. Where do you land on this, Brad? Uh, it is a big cocaine-filled bomb for me. Uh, I'm going to second that. Although, is it weird to say it's a bomb, but you might want to watch it for Brad and Margot? Is that allowed? Brad Pitt, not me. I'm not in the mood. Oh, Yo, yeah. If <laughs> you were, like, oh, Brad Anderson, it would <laughs> definitely, definitely not be a bomb. But uh, yeah, okay. There we go. Jose, you're uh, on break. You're on vacation to what? January. Yeah, we are. We are on hiatus. Hopefully, we'll come back mid January. Um, we were going to review Godzilla minus one, and uh, you still can. Uh, I. I know we still could. I uh, I saw it in the theaters and was blown away. It was it was great. It I was it reminded me of Jaws. It had that sort of craziness to it, and then it went all like kaiju. Yeah, just fantastic. It's a hard watch. Right? Um, yeah, hard watch. And I think it's like the honestly, perfect, I, God, perfect Godzilla film. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it was one of the first that was nearly day and date overseas and here at the same time. And it's been a huge hit in both places. So I hope that means more Godzilla movies. Uh, the way it ended, I, I think they can keep it going. So I'm, I'm excited. Yeah. Do you, is there a movie in January you're kind of eyeing that you might come back to, or you're just going to wait and see? I, I think we're just going to wait and see. Okay. Yeah. Well, but. Brad, uh, what are we doing next week? Cause we were going to do it. What? A week or so ago, but we made a change. Now we're going to get back to it. Yeah. So we're going to do two Guy Ritchie films. We're going to do The Covenant and Operation Fortune. And also Troy and I are going to give out our top five films of the year and the worst films of the year. So we're going to be doing a little bit of that. So look forward to doing that. Uh, Yeah. Can't wait to hear the worst list. (laughs) It's it's actually, I will say for me, it's going to be. It's going to be a hard list to put together. And there's a handful of films that I, I hope I get to see before we do that recording. But but we'll just, I don't know. If we get to them, great. If not, I'll have to amend my list next year when I finally get to them. Yeah. Uh, and I, the three of us, we're going to be celebrating Christmas with a very special Breaking <laughs> Brad. With Kirk Cameron. Oh, Are you guys excited yeah. for that? Yeah. Oh, it's yeah, the last one. Yeah. It's the last Breaking Brad. I'm, you know what? I'm curious to see how I... How I do with this, honestly. I'm curious so. as well. Kurt saves Christmas. He saves <laughs> Christmas. Because, you know, us white people have been, you know, there's always been a war on Christmas for the last, I don't know how long. We got to save it, man. That's right. This war on Christmas shit. But uh, anyway, I'm assuming you both have not watched it yet. Haven't watched it yet. I, uh, nope. I am off work for a long time. So at some point in time between now and Thursday, I'm going to have to yeah. get it in. Seriously. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Exactly. Me too. So, uh, how do people reach us to share their thoughts on Babylon if they've seen it or recommend bombs for next year? Because 
we got a lot of open spaces, people. Um, we're we're trying to. We might do some themed months. Uh, we've got a couple of things cooking, but we would love to hear what you want us to talk about. But Brad, how do they get hold of us? Yeah, that's not a bomb pod at gmail.com, or you can head over to not a bomb podcast.com, hit the contact us button, or you can go on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Also, Troy, yeah. I mentioned top five and worst five of the year. If you go to not a bomb podcast and hit 2023 poll, I think is what we called it. What did I call it? 2023 film poll at the top of the page. You listener can put in your top film of the year and your worst film of the year. And we will compile those and kind of talk about some of them, uh, some of the films that people uh, submitted. Yeah. We might even reach out to, to some of our friends and see if they've got a couple of uh, suggestions that they want to throw in for, for the yeah. top and bottom. That'd Jose, cool. start thinking about what your favorite films of the year were. And, and the worst ones. You know what? You know, the, when, when you mentioned favorite, one that just popped into my head was Netflix's May, December. I was really bowled over by that. Uh, Julianne Moore, wa- Natalie Portman. Should I watch fantastic. that? Fantastic. Okay. I, I think, you, I, I think, yeah, I think you should. You, Todd Haynes is an amazing filmmaker. Love okay. him. But, but yeah, that one really hit me. I love that movie. Huh? I have. So, I, I mean, I'm all three of us are in the same boat. You kind of get to the end of the year when you start thinking about the the best films and then you realize how many movies you didn't get to. Um, yeah. I always feel like I could make a, a more informed list around March of the next year because, you know, yeah. I, I need that three months um, rollover to get to everything. <laughs> but uh, it could be like the it could be like your Oscars, right? You won't you won't compile until February or March. I don't know. I yeah. I, I I can think of five in both categories um, right now. So it it'll be interesting. I I thought it was a really good year. So it'll, yeah. it'll be cool. Brad, if uh, they want to listen to other really really cool podcasts, who should they listen to? Yeah, they should listen to Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Watch Skip Plus. Hit that back catalog or wait for them to return in mid January. The VHS Files. Night of the Living Podcast, the Backlook Cinema Podcast, the Mixtape Podcast, and Raters of the Podcast. Yeah, and if you're on YouTube, go and check out our friend John's channel, and now for something a little bit different. And one final thing, Brad, we're trying to get something together, but um, our good friend, Michael Neal, uh, who's a filmmaker, has actually a new release, and... It's so he did this web series called Infinite Santa 8000. And what he ended up doing was taking this animated web series and turning it into a full film. It just got an official special edition Blu ray release from Synapse. So mine just showed up in the mail. I got Uh, mine. You got yours? It's limited to a thousand. Yeah. So I would encourage everybody to run out and get it. We've been talking in the show notes. Yes. We've been talking with Michael. We're probably going to get him on the show so we can talk about that movie. Um, it, I, I, I gotta be honest with you. Like, uh, I love, I love animation and infinite San infinite Santa 8,000. I I know you've seen it too, Brad, but if, if I were to just do an elevator pitch to somebody, it would be like, Hey, do you want a punk rock animated Christmas film? There you go. Yeah. We're we're completely biased too. I'm not even gonna lie about that. We love Michael and Michael's been a friend of ours for a long time. So 
take our opinion with it with a grain of salt, but it is worth checking out. It, it is. Uh, I'm really curious to see what the new transfer is because Brad and I sort of behind the scenes have been able to watch that go from just this really uh, interesting web series into a full-fledged film and now it got this whole visual upgrade, so mm-hmm. I'm, I'm kind of excited to check it out. But yeah, Michael was very proud and, and very happy with the way the transfer happened, and he said it, you know, makes it almost look like a totally different movie. Yeah, so I'm gonna watch that over the holiday, and then we're gonna get together and talk about it. Um, but yeah, there is a nightmarish rabbit or creature that's the Easter Bunny that has just it's been seared into my brain right yeah, now. It's a, it's a post-apocalyptic um, Santa versus the Easter bunny animated film. So synapsefilms.com infinite Santa, 8,000 limited edition. Yeah. And, and like Brad I said, it's, I'm adding to the cart. It's definitely up our alley. Cause we, we really like that sort of avant-garde animation. Um, but yeah, check it out. Uh, I think that's it, Brad. No, no, no other announcements or are we good? I think we're good. Okay, folks. Well, I don't know if you're listening in the morning, the afternoon, or evening. Thanks for downloading the episode. Uh, share your thoughts on what you think of Babylon, and we'd love to hear it if you've seen the film. Come back next week. We're going to end the year with two films from Guy Ritchie. Uh, I'm super excited to talk about those. And then we're going to talk about also our favorite films from this year, as well as the movies that just kind of drove us insane. So it's going to be a really fun episode. We'll, we'll see you then. Don't lose your head.